Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm very excited to welcome to the show today Dr. Clint Tippett, who is a cardiac anesthesiologist and a clinical assistant professor and also associate program director at Texas A&M Health Sciences Center College of Medicine at Baylor Scott and White Memorial Hospital. And uh, Clint has an interest in anesthesia for TAVRs, that's um, well, we'll ask him what tavers are uh, in a second, but Clint, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jed. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I let's start with my first question rather than, than me giving it away. What is a taver and, uh, and what do we want to, uh, why are we interested in it? So TAVR is a acronym for transcutaneous aortic valve replacement. And what that is, is a procedure that's used to alleviate symptoms associated with severe aortic stenosis and decrease the risk of death from severe aortic stenosis. So it involves the replacement of uh, the aortic valve with displacement of the native uh, calcified aortic tissue uh, with a percutaneously inserted bioprosthetic valve. Typically, it's delivered via a catheter through the femoral artery, uh, as opposed to a traditional uh, median sternotomy with cardiopulmonary bypass and all the uh, problems associated with that. Okay, so great. Now you touched on this a little bit already, but you know what's the advantage? Why would we want to do this instead of uh, the traditional surgical uh, AVR? Yeah, that's a great question. That that is the question. So, concerning the traditional surgical aortic valve replacement, SAVR, uh, the advantages of a SAVR that you have a long history of safety. It's been considered the gold standard for symptomatic patients uh, with severe aortic stenosis for decades now. Uh, a typical mortality rate uh, is about 2%, according to the most recent uh, 2017 STS uh, update. However, the disadvantages of a surgical aortic valve replacement are that up to 30% of patients aren't candidates uh, for surgical aortic valve replacement, either due to advanced age or significant comorbidities. As I mentioned earlier, it still requires cardiopulmonary bypass and aortic cross clamping and all the untoward side effects associated with those processes. Uh, you don't necessarily have to have a median sternotomy anymore with the minimally, minimally invasive approaches that are available, uh, but you do still uh, typically have a higher risk of bleeding with a, a surgical AVR, increased risk of acute kidney injury, uh, and you also tend to have a longer hospital stay when compared to TAVR. Now, the advantage of a TAVR is you typically have a shorter procedural time. Uh, instead of being able to do one or maybe two aortic valve procedures in a day, uh, you can do three to four TAVR procedures per day uh, in a single operating room or uh, cardiac cath lab. Uh, you typically have a shorter ICU stay if you even have to go to the ICU, typically have shorter hospital stays, and they've been proven to be uh, non-inferior uh, in terms of mortality, and that, that's well uh, established now in both high-risk patients and now in intermediate-risk patients as well. Um, in low-risk patients, SAVR is still the gold standard for now, uh, but uh, there's emerging literature that that could be changing soon. Um, 
TAVR is a relatively new procedure. It's only been available commercially since 2007. So in the U.S., it's been done for 10 years now. Uh, there's a much greater experience in Europe, specifically in Germany and France. They have extensive registries with thousands and thousands of patients. Uh, and they're a few years ahead of us in terms of the maturity of their, their TAVR experience. Uh the STS registry, which is uh, here in the United States, uh, originally started with only 148 participating programs, and TAVR sort of exploded over the last four or five years, and we're now up to over 400 uh, institutions providing TAVR. So it's becoming more and more common, uh, and it's likely to come to a, a hospital near you. All right. So becoming more common, tons of institutions doing it. Certainly we're doing it here, uh, and I think we'll, we'll get to and talk a little bit later about how the anesthesia for it uh, is changing over time. So you mentioned some of the main uh, advantages, it being shorter, shorter length of stay, maybe not even having to go to the ICU, and then non-inferior. Now, I, my question for you is, when, when you say it's non-inferior to surgical AVR, uh, some patients can't even have a surgical AVR, right, but could have a TAPR. So for them, uh, it's really the choice, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's really the choice between whether to get their valve replaced uh, or not at all. Uh, in terms of being able to have a TAVR? Well, actually, in that patient population, so those patients would be considered prohibitive risk or non-operative patients. Those patients actually have uh, superior outcomes uh, when compared to maximal or optimized medical therapy when having a TAVR. So there's a, uh, a good, uh, good amount of data coming out now uh, that shows that the 30-day, one-year, two-year, three-year, and five-year mortality rates are all lower with TAVR compared to uh, compared to uh, optimized medical therapy. Okay, great. So we talked about the morbidity and mortality. Uh, we talked about um, kind of the advantages. What when you're when you're getting ready to do anesthesia for a TAVR? What are your preoperative concerns? What are you thinking about as you're getting ready? Great question. So. Some of the things that I consider when I'm evaluating a patient for TAVR, first off, uh, a decision has been made well in advance before I ever see the patient typically uh, of whether or not the patient needs, even needs an aortic valve replacement. And so kind of like we're talking about, patients who are traditionally non-operative candidates now have an option of having this TAVR procedure. So uh, my first goal when evaluating a patient who's coming in for a scheduled TAVR is to assess what class of uh, risk this patient would be assigned to. Is this a patient who would be a, a high surgical risk patient who is at a significant risk of perioperative uh, mortality, um, you know, greater than 15%. Uh, some of the patients have a predicted 50% operative mortality that come in and have successful TAVRs that go on to live uh, many years with uh, reduced symptoms after their procedure. So I walk in and try to assess, is this a high-risk patient? Uh, is this a, a patient who was uh, considered non-operable before for whatever reason, uh, advanced age, comorbidities, et cetera? Or is this a patient who's intermediate risk? Uh, we currently are not doing uh, TAVRs on patients who are considered low surgical risk outside of studies. Uh, the institution that I'm at right now does, in fact, participate with a partner three trial, which is uh, performing TAVR procedures on uh, low risk patients. Uh, but part of the goal is to evaluate uh, who, who are we looking at? So are the patients 
uh, comorbidities optimized uh, preoperatively. Um, and then sort of the decision once I determine how ill the patient is, uh, would be what's the plan going forward for the anesthetic? Is this the patient who would benefit from a general anesthetic or someone who might be amenable to a, uh, a monitored anesthesia care or a moderate sedation with a local anesthetic approach? So you can actually do these uh, without general anesthesia? Absolutely right. Uh, and in fact, that's sort of a developing trend in the U.S. over the last few years. Again, I mentioned that uh, Europe tends to be a little bit ahead of us on this. Uh, in Europe, about 85% of TAVRs are done under uh, MAC or monitored anesthesia care, uh, where in the U.S., uh, previously only about 15% of TAVRs are done under monitored anesthesia care. The vast majority are done under general anesthesia. However, that, uh, that uh, percentage is changing as time goes by. And the reason that's changing is for a number of reasons, uh, but part of it has to do with advancing technology uh, and also uh, the maturation of uh, the experience level of our cardiology colleagues and our uh, cardiac surgeons as well, who both are involved in uh, implantation of these TAVR devices. That's great. And so what would push you one way or the other? If you're deciding between general anesthesia or monitored anesthesia care, what are some of the kind of main factors that might make you do one or the other for a given patient? Sure. So things that I look at uh, when, I'm, when I'm evaluating a patient to determine whether or not they're a suitable candidate for monitored anesthesia care, there's a whole list of things that, uh, that I consider. None of them are necessarily uh, an absolute contraindication, but all of them sort of come together uh, to, give, uh, to give a picture of what might be the best way to go. So uh, look at the size of the patient. If they have uh, extremely large body mass index greater than 40, that's a potential contraindication to doing a MAC. Uh, not an absolute, but potential. Um, and why presence is that? What, 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 what do you worry about with the patients who are morbidly obese? Right. So I'm worried about uh, presence of uh, respiratory depression uh, with sedation during the procedure. Many patients are able to undergo this uh, TAVR procedure with uh, very minimal sedation. I've done these with as little as just 25 micrograms of fentanyl wow. uh, and a local anesthetic for the entire procedure. Uh, most patients, however, require a uh, a more uh, a more robust anesthetic, uh, either a propofol infusion with a small amount of uh, uh, an opioid or narcotic, uh, or dexmedetomidine infusions. Okay. Uh, other things that you other things that you consider when evaluating patients to determine determine whether or not they're low risk is the uh, function of their left ventricle. Do they have a normal le left ventricular function? Uh, an EF less than 30% something that uh, certainly catches my attention. I also talk with uh, the cardiologist and the cardiac surgeons uh, to assess what their uh, feeling is about the ease of the procedure itself. So uh, they look at the height of uh, the coronary arteries as they come off of the aorta. They look at uh, how shallow uh, the sinus of Valsalva is. They look at the degree of calcification uh, on the aorta uh, and in the iliofemoral vessels when evaluating a patient. And that sort of gives them an idea of whether or not they think they'll be able to easily access a patient via transfemoral route or if a patient's not going to be a candidate for a transfemoral route and will have to have uh, an alternative route like a, a transapical approach through a uh, uh, an anterior left thoracotomy, or if they'll have to have a transaortic approach. Now, is there any also way look do, at it? Sorry, is there any way ahead. to do that uh, to do this through uh, like an axillary approach, 
Uh, Absolutely, okay. yeah. So axillary approach, subclavian artery approach are certainly described techniques uh, that uh, they tend to have slightly higher uh, vascular injuries uh, compared to a traditional transfemoral approach. Uh, but in patients who have unfavorable vessels, that's certainly an alternative. Okay, great. So other things that I look at when I'm evaluating a patient are whether or not a patient can lie flat for an extended period of time, uh, either due to shortness of breath or low back pain, um, ability to cooperate. So uh, these patients tend to be quite elderly um, compared to the average surgical aortic valve patient. Um, so will they have any, uh, any presence of dementia or Alzheimer's disease, uh, presence of obstructive sleep apnea? severe lung disease, uh, history of a contrast allergy, which the patient will receive contrast during uh, during the procedure to evaluate position of the valve and assess for uh, paravalvular leak after deployment, uh, and also presence of uh, critically severe uh, aortic stenosis with a valve area of less than 0.6. Okay, so those are things that might push you more toward a general anesthetic. Now, do you ever use LMAs for these? So I have not. It's been described. Um, there's sort of two schools of thought. So when we first started doing these at my current in current institution back in uh, 2012, um, we did 100% of these under a general anesthetic. We had maximally invasive anesthetic approach. Everyone received a pre-op arterial line. Everyone was intubated with a secure airway. Uh, everyone had a, uh, a right IJ introducer with a PA catheter uh, mm -hmm. in place. Uh, we had the cardiopulmonary bypass machine on standby with a perfusionist available, cardiac surgeon in the room, gowned and glove, participating in the procedure. As technology has evolved and the procedure's gotten safer and safer, uh, and also our uh, our colleagues have gotten better with their techniques. Uh, we've been able to sort of pare down how much we are required to do to provide an adequate anesthetic for these patients, uh, such that now we can actually perform these, like you mentioned, under MAC. Uh, in some places, they do a, a minimalist approach where uh, there's no arterial access, so no art line uh, preoperatively or intraoperatively, no central line, uh, and no ET tube, just a little bit of sedation. Uh, the cardiologists, when they're uh, gaining femoral access, uh, place both arterial and venous sheaths. And the way you do a minimalist approach to TAVR is you just uh, access the sidearm of the femoral venous sheath, and you can access the sidearm of the uh, femoral arterial sheath as well. So you can monitor uh, femoral arterial blood pressure and also have uh, venous access if you need to give vasoactive medications or uh, large volume administration. Now, are you guys doing that, or do you still uh, put in A-lines of your own? We do. We do a little bit of that. Um, for the most part, we still put in A-lines on just about everybody, but we have uh, started the practice of foregoing a central line on many of our patients. Okay. Now, some patients, we still do put in uh, central lines, and part of that is determined um, by how easy we think the patient will be to pace uh, with a pacemaker. So typically with these procedures, a transvenous pacemaker is floated from the femoral uh femoral vessels uh, up into the right atrium. Um, that doesn't always capture. There are some risk factors that you can uh, notice preoperatively. Typically, EKG abnormalities, uh, left bundle branch block, uh, anterior fascicular block, uh, that lead to increased risk of post-op pacemaker uh, 
need. Uh, and typically on those patients, we'll place a right IJ central line and actually uh, place a screw-in pacemaker lead for those procedures. Okay. Yeah, I've definitely seen patients come out with those screw-in leads in place. And that's because of the risk uh, that the procedure may lead to a complete heart block or some, some other uh, dangerous block. Correct. Okay. And do you have any idea how common is that if you take, I mean, it sounds like there are, there are risk factors that make people more uh, at risk for having this happen, a pre-existing block, like you mentioned. Um, but it sounds like not every patient needs that screw and lead. So it's uh, a lot of people come out of this without that complication. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, Okay, so part of it is determined by the type of valve uh, that's implanted. Uh, in the U.S. right now, there are two valves that are most commonly inserted, or two types of valves. Uh, there's a balloon inflatable uh, valve, and then there's a self-expanding valve. Uh, the self-expanding valves tend to have a higher rate of uh, post-operative pacemaker uh, insertion. Part of the reason for that is because of their size. They tend to be a little bit longer valve, uh, and when seating those valves, they tend to go down into the LVOT a little bit further uh, than the balloon inflatable valve, and those can uh, compress uh, some of the uh, conduction tissues uh, uh, in the heart, uh, leading to need for permanent pacemaker placement. Um, so the uh, pathway, I would imagine, is that patients who are either at high risk or maybe some places are going to do this and everyone will get either a transvenous pacemaker or a screw-in lead. They will then come out, and if they uh, their heart functions just fine, they don't have a block, then eventually that will come out and they'll go home without yep. a pacemaker. If they do develop complete heart block and it doesn't resolve as the inflammation goes away over the first several days post-op, then they would need a permanent pacemaker. Yeah, exactly right. Great. Okay, so... Let's say your resident is uh, working with you on a given day or your fellow and, and they haven't done this before. What do they need to get ready for this case? Is it like a cardiac uh, uh, pump case where they should, they're going to mix up a whole lot of drips and have them all ready? Or is it a more minimalist setup? Well, where I'm at, we still do a pretty big setup for all these. We treat these as if they're a heart case, even on the ones that we do a MAC uh, for. We have a full cardiac setup with all of the uh, associated airway equipment on standby in case we need to manipulate the airway during the procedure. Uh, we have uh, perfusionists on standby still at this point, though we are uh, beginning to consider the idea of performing some of these low-risk patients uh, without a, a perfusion or cardiopulmonary bypass team on standby. Uh, we have a typical setup. We would have a norepinephrine infusion, epinephrine infusion, phenylephrine infusion. Um, depending on whether or not we're going to get our own central access, uh, we may place uh, an eight and a half French uh, introducer, or we may just place a, a double lumen uh, seven French uh, uh, rod IJ catheter. Okay. In terms of having a cardiac surgeon on standby, uh, what would the complication be that would make you need to call that surgeon in? Yeah, great question. So the things that uh, could necessitate needing a cardiac surgeon emergently, there, there are a couple of different things uh, at various different points throughout the procedure. So in the pre-valve de deployment phase, uh, they place a stiff guide wire up the uh, the descending aorta and across the aortic valve, uh, that wire can actually perforate uh, the left ventricle or any point across uh, the aorta. You could have acute aortic dissection. You could have ventricular perforation. Uh, during the actual valve deployment itself, 
Uh, you could have uh, aortic annulus rupture. Um, you could have coronary occlusion, which leads to uh, myocardial ischemia and rapid hypotension and, and hemodynamic collapse. Um, so those are those are a couple of the different things that uh, you'd be worried about. Other things would be device embolization, uh, either back into the left ventricle during deployment or out into the aorta if it's not well seated after deployment. Uh, those things would be surgical emergencies that would need to be uh, treated immediately. Okay. Now, if if places your your shop or any others are moving away from. The idea of having to have cardiac surgery on call. What would happen if, if uh, in the setting? What would be the backup plan for a complication like that? Yeah, I think we're still we're still a ways off from that. Uh, at this point, uh, CMS still recommends that uh, you have a, a heart valve team both evaluate the patient and be present uh, and jointly perform the procedure uh, for these TAVR valves. Uh, so that includes a cardiologist and a cardiac surgeon in the room at all times. Uh, well, not at all times, but it, uh, definitely during the uh, the valve deployment. Okay. Uh, so at this point, we're we're still a ways away from that. All right. It's not right. not quite a uh, not quite a heart cath yet. Fair enough. All right. Uh, so what if you were to go through, tell me what the kind of key steps of the procedure itself are and what you're looking for or you're worried about uh, at, at those stages. Sure. So I would say that you could probably divide this up into four different phases. So you have uh, a pre-deployment phase of uh, a valvuloplasty phase that may or may not be needed, uh, depending on the patient, depending on the type of valve that you're using. Then you have a positioning and deployment phase, and then you have a, a post-deployment phase. Uh, so in the pre-deployment phase, the cardiologist gains femoral arterial access uh, percutaneously, um, inserts a pigtail catheter. Uh, at this point, a tran your transvenous uh, pacing lead is introduced through a femoral vein. Um, for the anesthesiologist during this time, whether you're doing a general anesthetic or a monstrate anesthesia care, your goals are to maintain hemodynamic stability, uh, adequate analgesia, and adequate hypnosis uh, during this time. Uh, as I mentioned, you can have some serious problems, uh, specifically with a stiff guide wire. Um, when inserting that. Uh, also, you can have vascular access issues. That's become much less of an issue with these newer valves that we have. Uh, the original valves that they uh, used to put in a few years ago were 24 French, so that's a, that's a big valve. Now, uh, the newer valves are down to 14 French, so much more manageable size. We see much uh, lower rates of vascular, uh, vascular incidents uh, with these new ones, but you still can have uh, femoral dissection, aortic dissection, femoral rupture, uh, and hemorrhage associated with vascular access in the pre-deployment phase. Uh, during this time, this is also when we're giving our, our uh, heparin. Um, you typically want to have your activated clotting time greater than 250 seconds uh, before valve deployment. Uh, so then you would move on. less than for a pump case. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. A typical uh, ACT for a, a, a cabbage or a, a surgical aortic valve is 480 seconds, so much, much less. Great. Uh, uh, during the valvuloplasty uh, portion, um, uh, this may or may not be needed depending on the severity of stenosis. A valvuloplasty is typically only performed uh, for a patient with uh, critical aortic stenosis that they don't feel that they can get uh, the TAVR valve across uh, the native aortic valve due to extreme calcification. Uh, 
The valvuloplasty allows adequate dilation of the annulus to ensure proper seating uh, of the prosthesis within the aortic root. It allows for easier passage of the prosthesis, and it permits adequate cardiac output while the prosthesis is positioned across the stenosed aortic orifice. What you can see with these really tight stenotic valves is when you do place this, uh, this catheter across your stenotic aortic valve, uh, to get it properly positioned can take a couple of minutes, and during that time you can have some significant uh, hemodynamic compromise. Uh, the valvuloplasty is typically performed under rapid uh, ventricular pacing, uh, somewhere between 160 and 200 beats per minute. Uh, we tend uh, to go on the lower side where I'm at. And what's um, the purpose of that? The, pur the purpose of the rapid pacing is to, to decrease the left ventricular cardiac output, uh, to decrease uh, the risk of the balloon moving during valvuloplasty, but also to decrease the risk of uh, acute left heart failure. Uh, typically, we want to keep the sequences of rapid pacing uh, relatively short, less than 15 seconds uh, if possible. And also between sequences of rapid pacing, either between valve, uh, valvuloplasty and valve deployment or repeat valvuloplasties, uh, we want to allow the patient to recover and have uh, a blood pressure greater than uh, 100 millimeters of mercury systolic uh, before attempting another rapid pacing uh, sequence. Now, when you say that the rapid pacing uh, will help avoid uh, acute left ventricular failure is the idea that if the heart were to try to push with a full cardiac output against an inflated balloon, that could sort of cause acute failure? Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. So when you pace it fast enough, as you said, it reduces the cardiac output enough that you can safely inflate that balloon. Yeah, that's exactly right. So then moving from the valvulo valvuloplasty portion to the positioning deployment, deployment portion of the procedure, uh, most of these valves, about 85% now, are deployed via a retrograde transfemoral approach. Uh, deployment of the balloon expandable devices requires rapid ventricular pacing. Um, and this, again, significantly uh, decreases the cardiac output and ensures stable position of the prosthesis during valve deployment. Now, deployment of the self-expanding devices, such as the Medtronic core valve or their new valve, the Evolute-R, doesn't require rapid ventricular pacing. So that's sort of a nice feature of those valves. Uh, in addition... Uh, those two valves are recapturable and repositionable, which the balloon inflatable valves are not. So that's a really nice feature. Um, however, this, those about Yeah, what's the situation, ahead. Clint, in which you would want to uh, re retrieve it or replace it? So if you have... Uh, if you have placed the valve and you notice that it's migrated distally into the aorta, or if you've uh, started to inflate it and it is... Uh, a little bit shallow in the LVOT, basically improper position, uh, or if the valve is uh, sitting askew and not lined up properly uh, within the aortic uh, aortic annulus, those are those are reasons that the cardiologist would typically try to recapture that valve and reseat it. Got it. So that's in the acute kind of placement setting. Is this you wouldn't retrieve it, uh, or would you sort of you know months or years later? No, no, not retrievable after it's fully deployed. But before uh, before it's fully deployed, it can be retrieved, be retrieved up to three times. Okay, got it. So a typical a typical sequence of how it goes when you're actually getting ready to deploy the valve. Uh, we employ a, uh, a closed-loop uh, communication in the operating room. Uh, we have everyone quiet, uh, sort of a closed cockpit uh, idea uh, where the operator speaks and everyone responds back. Uh, so the operator may say, okay, 
pacemaker ready, uh, pacemaker on. If we're uh, doing a general anesthetic, we'll hold ventilation to allow uh, optimization of the picture. Uh, at each point along the way, uh, closing the loop of communication. We'll rapidly pace if we're doing a balloon expandable valve, uh, deploy the valve, uh, and then uh, deflate the valve. And during that time where we have this rapid pacing and valve deployment, you typically see some pretty significant hemodynamic changes. With short pacing runs, those are typically uh, transient and resolve on their own. Uh, they might require a small dose of a vasopressor medication. Uh, typically, uh, phenylephrine will suffice sometimes, something as strong as norepinephrine or epinephrine are required. Um, after the balloon is deflated, if the valve is seated properly, you typically see rapid improvement of your um, pre-procedure blood pressures and hemodynamics almost immediately. Great. Now, when you are placing these, you mentioned some of the potential complications. Um, and you've got, when you're actually deploying it, you do have your surgeon in the room still, is that right? That's right. Okay. And so they may be on standby during the initial portions, but for the deployment phase, they come in. That's exactly right. So after you've got your valve deployed, uh, you've deflated your balloon, hopefully at this point uh, you've got an improvement in your hemodynamics, but now's the time to assess that. Uh, so you assess for uh, presence of aortic regurgitation aortic regurgitation. That can be done either with an aortogram, uh, if this procedure is being done under uh, a monitored, uh, a moderate sedation approach, or if you're doing a general anesthesia, one of the benefits of doing a general anesthesia is that you can actually place a, uh, a transesophageal echocardiogram during the procedure and use that to evaluate for presence of aortic regurgitation. Uh, anything greater than mild uh, aortic regurgitation has been uh, shown to increase uh, morbidity and mortality. Um, we also assess for a requirement for perhaps repeated balloon dilation if we have a paravalvular leak. Sometimes you can uh, post-deployment uh, perform a balloon dilation, and that will sometimes seal that uh, the paravalvular leak. We reevaluate LV function uh, during this time. If the valve has been placed slightly high, you may have occlusion of one of the coronary ostia and you can see uh, almost immediate uh, regional wall motion abnormalities uh, with your uh, TEE or EKG changes immediately as well. And if you Evaluate. do see those, is that a time when you'd still be able to move the valve with, the, with these newer valves? Typically, no. Typically, by that point, uh, the deed is sort of already done. Uh, difficult to move at that point. And so what is um, done if you do notice that you've uh, they've occluded one of the coronaries? So typically... Uh, with the way that they evaluate these valves pre-op, these patients all get uh, a CT scan of the chest pre-op, and they have a pretty good idea of the height of the coronary arteries and know which patients are going to be at risk for coronary occlusions. Now, that's not to say that they don't occasionally, uh, very rarely, uh, occlude a coronary, but if someone who's at risk, they will actually uh, uh, place a wire into the coronary ostia uh, pre-deployment, and that will sort of uh, allow them to visualize where the coronary ostia are and avoid them and protect them. Uh, now, if they were to uh, partially occlude a coronary ostia, they can try to uh, uh, to cannulate that vessel with a wire uh, after deployment. Uh, that's, as you could imagine, very challenging to do, but is sometimes successful. Okay. Um, so what, in, so you've now got your valve placed. Uh, you're assessing for, as you said, perivalvular leak and for aortic regurgitation with an echo if you're able to place an echo under general anesthesia or with an aortogram in an awake patient or a just sedated patient. Uh, and then you, let's say it, it looks good, 
Now, uh, what's next? What are the kind of post-op concerns? Right. So you do your final assessment of the valve, uh, valve position, make sure that it's functioning appropriately. Uh, at that point, uh, the surgeon and cardiologist are repairing the uh, femoral vessels. Uh, and in the absence of uh, a vascular complication, a perforation, dissection, occlusion, um, you go ahead and reverse uh, your heparin with protamine. Uh, your delivery system is completely removed at this point. Uh, your vascular access sites are completely closed. And if you're doing a sedation, you allow the patient to wake up. Uh, if you're doing a general anesthetic, uh, you have hopefully planned your general anesthetic in such a way that the patient will be optimized for uh, extubation at the end of the procedure is that that is the goal uh, for all of these procedures if you're doing a general anesthetic is to extubate on the table great now uh, this is a slightly off topic but related if a patient have you seen patients coming back uh, maybe it hasn't been lo around long enough but is there there is a concept isn't there of a kind of a tabber in tabber is that uh, uh, patients who have had a TAVR may be able to actually come back and have a TAVR placed inside their TAVR? Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And that's something that we, we may see a lot more of as the indications for TAVR expand. Uh, as we talked about earlier, right now TAVR is approved for non-operable uh, uh, or prohibitive risk patients, high risk patients, and now intermediate risk patients. Once we start doing uh, TAVRs on low risk patients who tend to be our younger, healthier patients who typically have hopefully 10, 20, maybe 30 years of expected uh, life left after the procedure, uh, we don't have long-term data on how long these TAVR valves are going to to last. The longest uh, data that we have in the U.S. is five years at this point. Right. Um, so it's quite possible that we do see these people coming back for a repeat TAVR or valve in valve. We do TAVRs right now on patients who are prohibitive surgical risk who've had prior aortic valve, sur surgical aortic valve uh, replacements, and that's that's a routine indication for TAVR now. Okay, great. And then there's also the interesting kind of possibility of when you're making the decision of whether to give a, a, a relatively younger patient a mechanical or a tissue valve, traditionally you would give a mechanical valve so that they wouldn't need it replaced again. But now, mm -hmm. uh, is, is it true you may actually say we'd be moving more toward maybe a tissue valve because they wouldn't have to come back for surgery. They could come back when that tissue valve fails for a TAVR inside the tissue valve. Exactly right. So I had a patient last week uh, who is a low-risk patient who is a on the younger side uh, having this done, and he said to me, you know, 20 minutes after his procedure when he's a wide awake in the PACU, uh, you know, if this thing doesn't work and I have to come back in 10 years, that's no big deal. This was easy, no big deal at all. Uh, we've had patients go home the very same day after TAVR. Now, that's not a routine result. Uh, a typical hospital stay is, you know, three to five days after TAVR compared to seven days for a surgically aortic valve. But right. uh, when it goes well, it goes really well. That's great. So, you know, what's interesting is through, through our talk today, clearly there is uh, – a trend towards uh, this becoming more routine, right? Certainly not, as you said, it's not yet a cath, but we've gone from, you said, everybody getting central lines and A lines and general in anesthesia and having a cardiac surgeon scrubbed in the room the whole time, and we've moved away from a lot of that. Uh, and so I guess the question is, is that a trend you see continuing? We may not be at a cath yet, but is this going to be as routine as a cath at some point? Uh, what does that look like in your uh, prediction? 
if if I had a crystal ball and I could look at my crystal ball and see, I, I would guess yes. Somewhere down the road, now I don't know if that's going to be five years, ten years, fifteen years down the road, uh, I could certainly see this being uh, a procedure where uh, you have nurse sedation in a cath lab for your aortic valve uh, replacement and you go home the next day. Uh, as the technology increases, as uh, the experience level increases, I think that's certainly within the realm of possibility. And if I were a patient, that's what I would want. That's great. It's really going to be interesting to see how that plays out. What do you think about, you know, should should these be done kind of at any hospital that can do it? Or do you think it's better to do these at high volume centers? Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting question. So part of the issue is access. You want the most people to have the most access to the best procedure. However, uh, there are studies that show that uh, operator experience is correlated to uh, decreased risk of mortality with these procedures. And so over the course of the first 400 procedures an operator performs, their risk of complications significantly decreases. And most of that decreases within the first 100 cases. And we've seen that here with our experience as well. Uh, the first you know, 100 cases, we seemed like we had a, an interesting story to tell every third or fourth case. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, now it's a very rare day where we have anything interesting to say after coming out of out of one of these procedures um so yeah okay so you know we'll see as they become more routine and more people are doing them uh how how much it happens but i think like like many things like you said it tends to be a learning curve and so you may be better off at a center that does a lot Mm -hmm. now let me back up a second because i meant to ask you when we're talking about echo uh Mm -hmm. now you said we it's nice to have the tee to evaluate for a perivalvular leak and for aortic insufficiency though you don't have to have it you can do an aortogram instead what about during the placement? Is it do you use echo if you have it to guide the cardiologist in placing the valve, finding the right uh, depth and all that, or do they do that under fluoro only? So originally, when we start, first started placing these, yes, uh, echo was utilized uh, to help place these in addition to fluoroscopy. Uh, but now these valves are essentially placed under fluoroscopy. Okay, so the only uh, area where you need the echo is at the end. Yeah, for for post-valve evaluation. Okay, fantastic. Well, Clint, this has been great. I've learned a ton, and I think people will really appreciate this. Is there anything else about this uh, topic that you think we should touch on before we end? No, I think it's it's an interesting topic that's only going to get more relevant as time goes on. Uh, you know, there have been, I think, about uh, estimates say 200,000 of these done worldwide right now, and that number is only going to continue to expand. Um, surgical aortic valve numbers uh, appear to be flat in the United States right now, uh, but the, the TAVR, uh, TAVR business is just uh, exploding right now. So it's something that you'll see. Great. Well, sure. it will be really interesting, I think, for everyone out there as they see these, and, uh, and this will help them a lot. So thanks so much, Clint. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. All right. That's it for our interview with Clint Tippett. I think that was really fantastic. And if you have questions, if there's anything that we discussed that you weren't sure about, if you have any comments, maybe you do anesthesia for TAVRs differently, let us know. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave comments that everyone can see and everyone can learn from. You can also, of course, email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. And if you haven't already and you enjoy the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. 
Also, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C where you can help support the show with even just a small donation of $1 or $2 can really make a difference to help cover the increasing costs of maintaining the site and the show. Uh, And we, of course, would really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. For Dr. Clint Tippett and the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.